So here's a really Catholic subject this evening. Here's Mary and the Saints. And this is the last, like, kind of doctrinal background kind of class we're going to have, because next week we're going to start talking about the sacraments themselves, and that's really important. Um, and just by the way, do you know where the Hail Mary comes from? It comes from the scriptures. Who said Hail Mary full of grace? Elizabeth, sorry. Who said Hail Mary full of grace? That was the angel Gabriel. Oh. Uh, who said the Lord is with you? That was the angel Gabriel. Who said blessed are you among women? And that was, that was her cousin St. Elizabeth. Who said Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners? We say that. That's just a petition. <laughs> Okay, so it's two salutations from the scriptures and a petition. That's all it is. Pray for us. And that's really important tonight because prayer uh, is what the saints are all about. So let's really, let's begin uh, with the simplest definition, which most Catholics don't know. What's a saint? It's really easy. A saint is someone who's in heaven. All right. Um, It's not a superhero. It's not someone who's greater than anybody else. I was on a plane cross-country from here to San Diego, dressed like this, uh, sitting in coach, and you know how it is. Uh, the people strike up a conversation with the, with the priest on the plane. And um, <laughs> she wanted to know why God created some people to be saints and other people to go to hell. And I was able to share with her a lot of what I'm sharing with you. And the answer is he doesn't. You choose that yourself, all right? So a saint is somebody who's in heaven. Uh, how many saints are there in heaven? The shortest answer is all of them, okay? <laughs> uh, but but, but the, the more complete understanding of that is God alone knows. So when we talk about saints in the Catholic Church, please understand, uh, we're usually referring to canonized saints. But anybody in heaven is a saint. And here's something I'd like to make very clear. If you're a canonized saint, you're not better than somebody else in heaven who never went through the canonization process. Okay. The church canonizes saints, uh, and we'll get to this in just a moment, but for our good, not for theirs, the saint couldn't care less that they're canonized. It's not like a little medal that they get. You know, I'm not only up here, I'm canonized. They're thinking about me down on earth. And no, but they couldn't care less. Would they be aware? The saints, but the, the, all truth, they'd be aware, yeah. The saints, um, um, the saints are canonized for our good. And I can jump ahead in my notes here. And You know why a saint is canonized? A saint is canonized. Well, we'll get to exactly why in just a second. But one of the reasons why the church will canonize one person and not another is because that person makes good biography. Honestly. Like, for all I know, my, my grandmom's a saint. I hope she is. But you can't make a story out of her life. You know, um, Marguerite Hutchinson, she's up there in heaven. God bless her. She vacuumed the rug. Uh, she went to the grocery store. She was nice to the hairdresser. Uh, she went to, who cares, right? She might well be as holy a soul as anyone who's ever lived. But when the church, and this is important, they're not better. They're just great examples. So when the church tries to canonize a saint, we'll get into the process in just a second, But please know, they do it for us. And if it doesn't make a good inspirational story, they don't bother. Almost like a publisher, you know, like they get a book idea and they think, well, who's going to like this? Is it going to be, is it going to work? Is it going to be, so they do it for us, not for the saint. All right. Um, So another important idea to understand is that when you think of a saint as being somebody who's in heaven, please know you're meant to be a saint. 
you're not meant to just kind of schlep your way through life half-heartedly. Um, and an important understanding is you can't be half a saint. It doesn't work. You're either all a saint or you're not a saint at all. You know, like I said, I told you I was, I was in the monastery once and that I learned a lot in the monastery. Have I mentioned? I can't remember what I've mentioned or what I haven't. But I remember one thing I heard in the monastery. One of the monks said that before anybody gets into heaven, the ego goes down to zero. Zero. Because there's no ego in heaven. That shouldn't surprise you. If there's ego in heaven, heaven wouldn't be heaven. So in other words, everything about you that loves yourself, uh, that's not getting into heaven. There's no way to do that halfway. But please know, this is your mission and your vocation and your, your calling in life. You're supposed to get to heaven. Um, and it's actually who you are. Now, um, not every saint was born that way. There were some prodigies in, in, in life. I like to think of St. Catherine of Siena. St. Catherine of Siena was having ecstatic visions of Jesus at the age of six. She was a prodigy. Okay? But I've got some other examples here of some less than prodigious who turned their lives around. St. Camillus de Lellis, an Italian mercenary soldier and a professional con man. St. Margaret of Cortona, a Tuscan nobleman's mistress. Here's my favorite one, St. Moses the Ethiopian. He led a gang of cutthroats through the Egyptian desert. St. Pelagia, she was an exotic dancer. Yes, they had X-rated dancers in all ages. All right? But you don't judge a saint from the beginning of their life. You judge it from the end of their life. You look backwards on how their life turned out to be and who they became. That's what makes you a saint. Okay? Um, so that's where, we, that's where you and I take hope. Uh, my favorite saints are the ones who weren't saints from the beginning. One of my favorites is St. Teresa of Avila. She schlepped her way through life until she was 41 and then got serious. Didn't even, before she was 41, she was socializing and uh, gossiping and, you know, doing everything that just ordinary, unrefined and less than holy people would, would do. Um, but she got serious and turned her whole life around. You know, so, and it, so please understand this. And this is what makes you yourself. I often like to say uh, that sinners are remarkably like one another. I often, you know, what's the difference between Hitler and Stalin? A mustache and a language. But other than that, they're remarkably similar. Uh, and, and it's, but saints, each is so unique. They became who they were meant to become. That's your deepest identity. As I tried to say before, when you do God's will, you become who God created you to be. When you do your own will, when you break God's commandments, you become a creature of your own making. All right? But please understand this. When we describe the saints, um, it always comes with a message, you can do this too. It's the, the, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, you know, the prince. He wrote the book, The Prince, and the subject matter of the prince is um, the only thing that matters is acquiring power and it doesn't matter what you do to acquire power as long as you acquire power. And we've got lots of people in power these days who live by that principle. Um, he once said of the saints, Niccolo Machiavelli, he said, the saints are like the stars in heaven. They're beautiful to look at, but they don't cast off very much light. They give zero heat. and They do us no good. I think a lot of people look at the saints the way Machiavelli looked at the saints. They think that they're, they're lovely, but utterly impractical. 
And if you want to have a Catholic understanding of this, please understand, they're given to you as role models with the message, you can do this. In fact, you must do this. Okay? There's really no other, there's really no other choice. Our job is to try to become what God created us to be. Okay, so that's what a saint is, and I hope that's a good little introduction there for you. Uh, we have a process of canonizing somebody as a saint. Now, before the year 1234, there was no process. A saint was a saint by what they say, acclamation. Uh, the first saints were martyrs. If you study the history of the church, you'll know that in the early days of the church, if you died for Christ, you were considered to be somebody who went straight to heaven. There was no more perfect love. And by the way, you couldn't provoke the Roman authorities. You couldn't, you know, you know, uh, say, hey, Caesar, you suck. You, know, um, you couldn't do that. You couldn't provoke the Roman authorities. You had, you had to be killed because they hated your faith and you would not deny it. That's what a martyr was. No greater love than to lay down your life, okay? Um, in fact, they say that martyrdom was the most cleansing thing that could happen to your soul after baptism, which we'll get to uh, when we talk about baptism next week, all right? Um, but, the, but every martyr was considered to be a saint. But other than that, when the, when the persecutions ended, uh, people realized you didn't have to actually die for Christ to give your whole life to Christ. There were plenty of people that lived great and holy lives. They were just never killed. And these became known as the white martyrs, uh, which, by the way, is why the priest wears white whenever they celebrate a mass in honor of a saint who was not a martyr. Uh, they did not shed their blood. They were the white martyrs. And they were saints by acclamation. I'll give you an example of a saint by acclamation. Mother Teresa of Calcutta is the closest thing we have in our own time to a saint by acclamation. Didn't everybody know while she lived that she was a saint? It's like everybody knew it. And when she died, everyone's like, of course she's a saint. There were certain people that were like that. One of them, uh, Benedict Joseph Labray. He was a poor beggar in the streets of Rome. He tried 12 times to get into the Benedictine order, and he was turned away every time. But everybody in town knew he was a saint. Uh, when, they, when he died, they paraded his body through the streets in a coffin, uh, and everyone asked for his prayers. They knew he was in heaven. No canonization process. It was just by acclamation. It was by reputation. But um, as the church grew and grew and grew, uh, local acclamations that could declare you a saint, these kind of turned out to be not good enough. So they developed a process, and I'll try to describe this process for you. What they're looking for is what I call, what the church calls actually, heroic virtue. Not just being a good guy, not just being a, gen, a good egg, but being so good that there's no human explanation for it. It has to be the power of God illuminating you, because it's just impossible otherwise. That's what they're looking for when they canonize a saint evidence of heroic virtue. There's no human... He wasn't just a nice guy, smiled all the time, was nice to the people on the corner, you know, treated the barber well, um, but to a way that no human being can describe, can possibly do on their own power. So the process of canonization. It took years for this to evolve, but here's what we have these days. You have to be dead at least five years. That's to keep people from being in too much of a rush uh, to, 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 to canonize you. Um, and what, what happens is somebody gathers up evidence about your life. And a bishop appoints a, a, a tribunal to consider all the evidence, and the bishop looks it over, and if he thinks, this guy might have heroic virtue, this guy might have been the stuff that saints are made out of, they send it over to Rome. 
to a community called the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. And they read it over and they either accept it or reject it. There's a priest from Chicago who's at this stage right now, Father Augustus Tolton. He's the first uh, uh, black diocesan priest in American history. And the suffering that guy would have gone through, you know, you can imagine, in the 19th century, not only are you Catholic, but you're also black. And the, 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 the hell they would rain down on his head is enough to purify anybody to perfect love of God. And his cause is open. Okay, I'll give you another one um, whose cause is open. Um, um, he, he was a Navy chaplain in Vietnam. Uh, gosh, what's his name? The Grunt Padre, they called him. Uh, Father Vincent Cappadano. He won the Medal of Honor uh, in Vietnam, and he died trying to help a guy on the field of battle. Uh, in, 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 and his cause for canonization is open. And you know, they, they looked at it and they said, "This guy's got enough to, to go on," and they sent it over to Rome. So, a postulator, a guy in charge of arguing that you should be a saint, basically. I know a guy who's a. I know the postulator for Father Vincent Cappadano. He used to be my pastor. I lived with him, and he's now arguing to the Congregation for the Causes of Saints that this guy, who is a Navy chaplain in the 60s, ought to be declared a canonized saint. And he writes up a bio on him. And they give it to a bunch of theologians. They read over the guy's bio. And they say, I don't know, is he just a nice guy or did he have the stuff saints are made out of, heroic virtue? And if uh, two-thirds of those guys vote him through, they send it to a larger group. And those guys look it over. They're made of cardinals and bishops. If they vote it through two-thirds, they send it to the Pope. The Pope looks it over. Um, and if the Pope thinks he's a pretty good guy, he'll give him a title. He'll call him venerable. Okay? And that means, as far as they can tell, this guy lived heroic virtue. Okay? Um, but to be a saint, you need more than just a panel of theologians taking a vote on you. To be a saint, we want proof the guys in heaven. Proof. And the proof takes a two-stage process. The proof involves a miracle. All right. Now, I don't know if I've talked to you about miracles before, have I? Okay, I, I always hate to repeat myself, and yet I always repeat myself. So here we go. Um, a miracle uh, is something for which there is no human explanation. It's usually a healing. Uh, it's something that's instant, permanent, and irreversible. And it's directly tied to the asking for prayers from a saint. I'll give you an example of a, of a miracle that I personally know of. Uh, there was an Archbishop of Philadelphia in the 1900s. His name was John Neumann. People thought he was a saint. Um, in the 70s, there was a little child who was hurt in a car accident. And the nerve that connects his ear to his brain was severed. And a centimeter, about the width of your little finger, of the nerve that connects his ear to his brain was ripped out. It just wasn't there. He would never hear out of that ear again. Well, the parents took a relic, that is to say a small piece of bone, of John Neumann, and they said, your cause is open, and I know that saints in heaven are supposed to work miracles, and they put it to the kid's ear, and they said, pray for the health of my poor child, and the next morning, the kid's ear was perfectly healthy. It's like there was never an accident. And they sent it to Hahnemann Hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center to investigate. Now that's what I call a miracle. It's not like a bunch of theologians like, oh, it's a miracle. It's, no. They sent it to people who couldn't care less about whether he's a saint or not. 
And they said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. That nerve just doesn't grow, and certainly not overnight, but I can't argue with mm -hmm. the facts. It's there. It's permanent, it's irreversible, and it's instant. That's a miracle. Okay? So as a consequence of asking for prayers, a secular authority uh, investigates this, and if that happens, they'll take somebody venerable and they'll call him blessed. And if it happens again, they'll call him a saint. All right? That's how it goes. That's how it works. Um, so let's take about look at here what heroic virtue is. It's faith, hope, and charity to a heroic degree. All right? It is 100% complete cooperation with God's grace. It's not just being a good guy. It's way beyond, and this is the idea. You can't do this by yourself. God has to carry you, so to speak. And that's ultimately what a saint is. They were so cooperative with God's grace. Their will was so surrendered that God worked through them, almost like wind in a sail, all right? Uh, that's heroic virtue. Uh, this was codified by Benedict the Fourteenth, and we've got an idea of what that is. It's the following, uh, what is that, six or seven? Go to the next page. Following six things, all right? Uh, first of all, good actions are done, and this is what I want to say. You can do this. I'm only telling you this because you can do it. We're not Machiavelli here, all right? This isn't just, isn't that wonderful? Some people are like that. And let me go back to being a schlep again. No, you can do this. Good actions are done, not only in ordinary and easy circumstances, but when difficult and unusual. They're patient in routine matters and in highly trying circumstances. There was a, um, a bumper sticker a bunch of years ago that was popular. It was called Practice Random Kindness and Senseless Acts of Beauty. I don't know if you've seen that. It was from the 90s. Uh, kind of dated, I guess, just to talk about that now. And uh, they were interviewing the lady who made the bumper sticker, and she was basically like, you know, be kind to people you want to be kind to, people you think deserve it, but certainly not everybody, right? Well, the saint was kind to people who didn't deserve it. They were kind even when it was very difficult. Saint Monica, she was married to a bad spouse. He was not abusive, but he was unfaithful. And in spite of the fact that he deserved a slap across the face, to say the least, she kept being good to the guy. He didn't deserve it. That's why she's a saint. Okay? Uh, she, he ended up converting at the end of his life in deep repentance for his unfaithfulness to her. It took her whole life, but she won. She won. And she won by kindness. Right? That's what a saint does. Uh, they practice virtue not only in isolated cases, but whenever the situation calls for it. Not just some days, but all days. They're gentle even when they're annoyed. Uh, St. Philip Neri. He was very, very popular. So popular, people sought him out all the time. They rang the bell at his residence. They want to talk to Father Neary. And, and it's all day long, if you can just imagine every five minutes, somebody ringing the bell and they want to talk to you. I, I, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. He kept talking to whoever showed up. And he lived on the top floor of a building. And he'd go all the way down and talk to him. And then he'd go all the way back up. Again, up and down, up and down, up and down. He didn't need Stairmaster. Um, great cardio, yeah, upstairs. And they said, how does this not bother you? And he goes, well, I figure I'm just going from Jesus to Jesus. Jesus wants me downstairs, I go downstairs. Jesus wants me back up in my room, I go back up to my room. Didn't think twice about it. It would annoy the heck out of most people. Actions are done promptly and easily. They experience no difficulty doing extremely well and without delay exactly what needs to be done. I got the example of St. Thomas More. Uh, he's about to have his head lopped off in the Tower of London. 
Um, and he said when he was on his way to have his head lopped off, he said he was like a schoolboy going on holiday. Now, um, there's no such thing as a dour saint, a bleak saint, a hateful saint, or a stoic saint. If you ever meet a saint, um, apart from the fact that they are incredibly placid and that they just ra- radiate peace everywhere, I think I've met a couple in my life, honestly. When you walk away from them, you feel like your whole soul has been stilled. And it's, 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 it's like you've been on a week's retreat. You're like, wow, I don't know what the deal was with that. I met a, a, a religious sister who was like this. I never forgot it. Never forgot it. The last thing you'd think is that she's a, a sourpuss or angry or hateful or, you know, these people and their... You know, the people that give religion a bad name give Christianity a bad name. When somebody wants to make fun of Christianity, they always talk about some sour-faced person who's wagging their finger and saints weren't like that i gotta tell you they weren't like that the apostles they were flogged by the sanhedrin they walked away singing and rejoicing that they'd been found worthy to suffer for the name of christ you heard the story of saint lawrence who's heard the story of saint lawrence almost nobody okay saint lawrence very briefly saint lawrence was the archdeacon of rome we're going back to like the second century a.d now long ago church is being persecuted they captured St. Lawrence. And St. Lawrence was in charge of taking up the collection and distributing the money to the poor. And they said, we want you to bring us the treasures of the church. That's what they said. And so he said, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. And he came back to the Roman interrogators who were about to put him to death. And he had a bunch of blind, lame, crippled widows, orphans. He lined them all up. He said, here they are, the treasures of the church. And they were not amused. Well, they killed him. But they couldn't crucify him. Do you know that? You can't crucify a Roman citizen. It's against that's why they lopped off the head of Saint Paul. You can't crucify a Roman citizen. See that sword, the they, Vatican. That's right. Yeah. And so they killed him. They killed him the most painful way. They weren't gonna lop off his head, that was too quick. They skin him. They roasted him over an open grill, they cooked him alive. And as he was dying, he was laughing and joking. And he he literally said you can turn me over now, I'm done on that side. Like a flame-broiled whopper. And, and, and the fact that we remember him to this day, you know, there's all kinds of ancient martyrs. Lawrence is remembered as a feast day in the church. It's a feast day, and it's because of the way he died. Roman senators watched him laughing and joking because he knew he was going to heaven. That's the stuff saints are made out of. They don't have ups and downs. They're uniform in their performance and spirit. They, they're constant in taking the high road, not the low road. Deliberate sin is not there. Not even venial sin is there. Not even a sin of omission. And if two courses of action can possibly be taken, they always take the better one. Okay, this is what um, virtues are interconnected and all present. You know how uh, Robin Hood is made out to be a hero because he gives to the poor. Well, he also robs from the rich, and that's not good. Okay, you don't find that among the saints. Uh, they have everything. They're humble, they're honest, they're generous, they're chaste, they're faithful, they're gentle, they're patient. They've got it all. Uh, turning the other cheek. All kinds of stories here I can tell you. Francis of Assisi. Uh, did you ever hear about the story of Francis of Assisi and the Crusades? Real briefly, Francis of Assisi heard about the Crusades and thought, you know, people shouldn't be fighting one another in the name of Jesus Christ. And he got up and he walked to the Holy Land got up and he walked to the Holy Land and he walked right up to the Sultan uh, in, in, in the Holy Land. You know, people are fighting wars and they get anywhere near these guys and he walked right up to them. 
And he said to the sultan, I would like to make you a Christian. And the sultan says, you realize I could have you killed for saying that. And he had a conversation with him. I don't know how the conversation went, but when it was over, the sultan said to Francis of Assisi, if all Christians were like you, there would be no fighting between us. Um, it reminds me of uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta with Beirut. Did you ever hear about Mother Teresa of Calcutta and Beirut? They were fighting in Beirut back in the early 80s. And um, Mother Teresa said, you know, I, I got to get some food in to my house in there um, in, in Beirut. Uh, they're out of food. Can you please ask the United States Marine Corps to stop the shelling? Because I really need to get some... And it just, it, it sounded as ridiculous in 1982 as it sounds for me telling you. Imagine a, a little nun saying, would you, you know, could you please tell the Marines to stop shelling because, you know, I want to bring some food to them. Well, they said, Mother, that just doesn't happen. And she goes, oh, it must happen. Uh, my, my, my sisters need the food. They're helping the poor in Beirut. She goes, well, Mother, do you know what? You got, a, in, you got an in with the Almighty. I'll tell you what. If you pray that the shelling stops and God wants the shelling to stop, then the shelling will stop. Would you believe it? Mother Teresa said a prayer for the shelling to stop. And the next day, they asked for a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. The shelling stopped, and she walked food into, into Beirut. Right? I mean, it's incredible. Saint, these things happen. Um, honest, generous. Um, St. John Vianney, one of my favorite stories, he sees a man who has no shoes. He takes off his own shoes and gives it to the man with no shoes, and he walks away barefoot. Saints do that. Um, no vanity in dress, no desire to dominate a conversation or impress you. Uh, they're even at peace when they're blamed and accused. Uh, I know I'm not, okay, but these guys are. This is what heroic virtue means. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas said that anybody of goodwill can cooperate with God's grace and be kind of like that. But heroic virtue is only possible when you're completely cooperating with God's grace. It is, in fact, a moral miracle. Um, God really does take over, and you just don't get in the way. So how does that happen? A well, little at a time. Pray, then you act on your good inspirations, and you pray a little bit better, and you act a little bit better, and you pray a little bit better, and you're strengthened by God's grace in the sacraments, and little by little you surrender, and I hate to say it, but nobody ever arrives at sanctity without hammer blows of suffering. The anvil of suffering is the... Is what shapes and forms the souls of the saints. Nobody gets there without being hurt. I'm sorry to say it. Uh, it always, and so you can find these. If you find anybody who's greatly, greatly good, I guarantee you, somewhere back along the line, they have suffered very, very much, and they suffered well. Anybody can suffer and get worse. Anybody can suffer and raise a clenched fist to heaven and say, "Why God? Why and why me?" But when you suffer and you say, "Okay, God, I still believe in you." Did I ever tell you the story of the uh, um, the ordinance explosive ordinance worker from Vietnam? Who anyway? Um, somebody told me the story, and he was the explosive ordinance went off in his face, and he was trying to defuse a bomb. And the last words he said were, were "God, I still believe in you." And they took him off to the hospital, and they tried to reconstruct his face, and it didn't really work out all that well. And his girlfriend came to see him. And, she, and he's like, you're never going to love me now. And, he's, and she's like, oh, yes, I will. I'll always love you. He's like, but I'm so ugly. And she says, oh, Harold, you're never that good looking to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you want to say that to a guy, but, you know. Um, but but, but, the, but that you can suffer and suffer well. That's what does it, okay? So why do we canonize saints? Two reasons. Number one, an example for the living. 
That's why we canonize saints. It's for us, not for them. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, that's what saints are all about. When you can hear a story of a saint and go, oh, wow, that's impressive. Oh, wow, that's amazing. What you're really hearing is somebody whose life reflects Jesus. That's the only reason we honor these people. They're not little sub-deities. They're not little idols. It's because the light of Jesus Christ reflects off them that we say that they're great. So I've got lots of examples here for you. I've already told you the story of Maximilian Kolbe, I think. St. Elizabeth of Hungary. Um, You know, she was a princess. Try to picture this. Sold her possessions and gave them to the poor. Cared for the sick. Carrying them on her own shoulders. Um, uh, They say when she came forth from prayer, her face shone like, like the sun. Um, Robert Bellarmine, the very last thing that he ever did was give his last coins away to a beggar who came to his door. Uh, St. Thomas More, have I told you the story of Thomas More, apart from his execution? Um, St. Thomas More was Chancellor of all England, second only to King Henry VIII. Uh, you know about Henry VIII and his marriage? Was the, the, the six one wives of Henry VIII? Which well, one's the Saint, someone killed that meddling priest? That was, uh, that was, that was uh, Henry II, and it was um, uh, uh, um, Thomas Becket. This is, uh, this is Thomas More. Very similar, Henry VIII. Now, uh, Henry VIII, I don't want to get too much into the history, but he couldn't, have an, he couldn't have a child, he couldn't have an heir to the throne, so he divorced his wife and, and married another. And Thomas More said, eh, you can't do that till death do you part. Um, and Henry asked the Pope for an annulment, and the Pope looked over the case and said, no dice, Henry, I can't give you an annulment. And Henry left the Catholic Church because of it. And he said, well, I, I give myself an annulment and I'm head of the church. And everybody in England thought that was just fine, probably because they didn't want to cross the king. Well, Thomas More said, I, I hate to say this, but it's not fine. And they put him in jail. And they were unkind to his family. They, they exiled his family. How would you like to be locked in jail and your family is suffering because of what you did? And that would really hurt. Be like, punish me, but don't punish my kids. Don't punish. That's what they did. Um, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't relent. Uh, you know, the very last thing he said was, um, uh, before they killed him, he says, "His Majesty has commanded me to be brief in my last words, and because I am His Majesty's dutiful servant, brief I will be. I die, His Majesty's good servant, but God's servant first. And then they lopped off his head. Um, countless others. Um, uh, and, and please understand, um, even St. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So yes, Christ is our only model. But when somebody else lives a very Christ-like life, we're not wrong to honor them. We're, we're really not. So consider this. Um, if someone made a beautiful statue, if someone made a beautiful carving, if somebody wrote a great song, and you said, uh, I love that song, I love that statue. I love that painting. Would, would you be detracting from the honor of the artist or adding to it? You'd be adding to it. Well, the saint is God's artwork. Did I ever tell you the story? I was in uh, Rwanda, and um, I brought my guitar to Rwanda just for fun. I was in Rwanda, and I brought my guitar, and I'm in this orphanage. And you know what happens when you're an amateur guitar? Anybody here play guitar? Anyway, every amateur guitar player plays Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> it's such a cliche. Um, so I sit there and start playing Stairway to Heaven. And 
the orphans all gather around and like, that is the most beautiful song I've ever heard. And I go, you've never heard this before? Mm-hmm. You go, no, I've never heard that. It's such a beautiful song. And I'm like, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that. It took me a long time. Oh, you are very great, you know. Um, but you, 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 honor the, uh, you honor the artist, don't you? Well, God, God's the artist. God's the artist, okay? So please don't, please don't misunderstand. Uh, no, the saint is not idolatry. People really misunderstand. And, and, that's, and that's, what, that's what we do. It's an argument for the truth of the faith. I've said this before. Why am I a Catholic? Because of the saints. If I knew a lady who had a disease uh, and she took a medicine and she got better, I'd say whatever medicine she took, uh, I want it too because I want to be cured as well. Well, when you look at these saints and you realize they lived the Catholic faith not just 90% but 100% and you look at what happened to them, you say, well, whatever that church is prescribing, it works. And it's not the church's fault if people don't take the medicine, okay? So, examples for the living. Secondly, they remind us of the heavenly church. I was in uh, Germany for World Youth Day. A million people at World Youth Day. From every country in the world, waving their flags, singing in their own language. Looked across that, a million people. Imagine like the National Mall, filled. And they're all praying. And they're all singing. And I'm like, this is the church. This is amazing. All Every co- continent, I mean, even for all I know, they had a outpost from Antarctica re- re- uh, represented there. This is the church. Well, you know that it wasn't the church? That's only the church in our time. The fact is, the church spans all centuries. If you want to know what the church really is, you've got to include every century that's ever lived. And the tr- saints remind us of that, okay? We're all one in Christ, and it's bigger than us, it's bigger than our region, it's bigger than our country, it's bigger than our time. And all these saints in heaven, you know they're helping us? They're helping us with their prayers. Um, I walked a a corn maze uh, out in Paris, Virginia, which is out 66. I took the youth group to walk the maze. And when you finish with the maze, you walk it in the dark. It's open at night for some. When you finish with the maze, there's a platform up on top, and you can look over all the people walking the maze, and you can see the mistakes they make. And everybody on the platform, they've all finished the maze, and they're laughing at the people who are walking the maze. And they're cheering for the people when they make a right turn. Yay! You know, no! And, they find, and you finally cross through, and you join the platform. Well, the platform of people that have finished walking the maze. I thought, you know, that's kind of like the saints. They finished the race. And they're helping the people that are still trying to make their way. They're helping with their prayers. They're helping. With, please, please understand this. The reason, one of the reasons we canonize saints is because their prayers help us. Those who have finished this race help us along the way. All right? um, by the way, a lot of people think, you know, you go to a statue and that means you're worshiping the statue. No. You have a photo in your wallet of Someone who you love? Do people even have photos anymore? Maybe it's all on the iPhone. Do you have a photo on your phone of somebody you love? Well, you don't love the the pixels. You love the person. The photo just reminds you of the person. The statue just reminds us of the saint. That's all. And we do it for Abraham Lincoln. We do it for Thomas Jefferson. Nobody thinks we're worshiping Abraham Lincoln. And that thing on the National Mall really does look like a temple, right? I mean, if you could take an ancient from the days of the streets of Rome and bring them to the National Mall in D.C., they'd think that Lincoln and Jefferson are deities, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Um, but it just reminds us, that's all. And that's all when we have a statue of a... Of a so, so it's just a big misunderstanding, all right? So please don't, please don't get hung up on that if that's like a Catholic thing. Um, 
Uh, okay, so those are the saints. Now let's look at, like, take a look at the number one saint of all, and that's Mary. Now this is very important to state. If you're not a Catholic and you're trying to understand Mary, the simplest way to explain it is she had a unique job in God's creation. Let's make one thing clear. We don't worship Mary. She's not a goddess. She's not a sub-god. Anything like that. But we do confess one thing right up front. Of all the people that have ever lived, nobody had a job as big as hers. She was given a huge role to play. But she's still just a human being. She's still just a saint. I think when Catholics uh, you know, grow up with the faith, they don't think twice about this. When Protestants come in from outside, it can be hard for them to grasp this concept. So I'm trying to put this concept from the very beginning uh, of, the, of the faith. We've understood there's this one person who really did have a huge role to play. She was really special in God's plan. She's a saint. She's the greatest saint. Uh, it's only by God's grace that we're holy. And here's somebody who had so much of what make of the stuff that makes you holy that next to God, she's the most God-like creature uh, in all of creation. That's what I could say that about Mary. God is not created and God is not in creation. Uh, that's what I mentioned in our class on, on uh, the nature of God. God is not the greatest being in the universe. But he's not a being in the universe. God is the very active existence itself. Um, but you could say that Mary is the greatest being in the universe because nobody's more God-like than her. Nobody's got more grace. Um, okay, so, uh, so, so God worked through her and his plans are eternal. She's the mother of Jesus and she is the one through whom the grace of, the, of Jesus Christ came into this world and still comes into us. I've mentioned before God delegates. Who gave you life, God directly or your parents? Your parents. Who teaches you the truth of the faith, God directly or people who are friends of God and people who are friends of God share the, share the truths of the faith? Who lets you know God loves you, God himself directly or people who share that, people who share that love? God delegates. And this is a kind of a hard concept for us to understand. And the, and the delegation of the work of sharing divine grace, he's given it to the Blessed Mother, all right? Now, Blessed Mother once said, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, or my soul magnifies the Lord. If you want to understand the Blessed Mother, understand this. If I gave you a magnifying glass and ask you to look at the print on your page, would anyone ever say that the magnifying glass gets in the way of what you're reading? No, it magnifies what you're reading. That's what the Blessed Mother's like to Jesus Christ. She magnifies the Lord. The last thing she does is get in the way. She's perfectly transparent, and everything he is becomes more perfect because of her. You've got to have the Blessed Mother in your spiritual life. You really do, because she's part of God's plan. She's really not optional. Okay, so what do we believe about Mary? It comes from what we believe about Jesus. I've already mentioned before. Is Jesus Christ a human person? Yes or no? A human person. He's a divine person. So he's a human person? No. No. Otherwise he'd be two people. Does he have a human nature? Yes. Yes. He's a divine person. Um, Mary was his mother. It's not sufficient to call her mother of the human nature. Natures do not have mothers. Persons have mothers. Your mother is the mother of you. Human nature and human person. Mary was the mother of a person who's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. That's why we call her mother of God. It took him one day to come to that conclusion. 
when the bishops of the world gathered in Ephesus in 431 AD, and they gave her the title, title Theotokos, the God-bearer. Um, it's really only in recent years that anyone's ever said, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't call her Mother of God. Even Martin Luther said, that's my favorite title for Mary, Mother of God. Okay? Um, but, but please understand that if we, if we believe what we believe about Jesus, and if you believe what you believe about motherhood, it's just a syllogism. It's just simple logic. All right? Perpetual virginity. Mary had one kid. And that child was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right? um, I could go off for a long time about the brothers of Jesus. You go to the scriptures and it says, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And it even describes, it even uses the Hebrew word Adelphoi. Um, and there's a, I'm sorry, the Greek word Adelphoi, for, uh, which is the word for brother. There's a, there's a Greek word for uh, cousin, anepsios, and it's not used. They could have used the word cousin, they didn't use it. They used the word brother. Your mother and your cousins, they didn't say that. Why did they say, why did they say brother? Because it was a Hebrew culturalism. Um, you know, they've been doing this all down through the Bible. It's just the way they referred to each other in Hebrew culture. Lot is called Abraham's brother, but he's really his nephew. Um, here's something really interesting. Jesus is always called the son of Mary, not a son of Mary. And if you're looking for an ace in the hole <coughs> about why <coughs> Mary had no other kids beside Jesus, you'll find it at the foot of the cross. From that moment forward, the Gospel of John tells us, after Jesus said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, from that moment forward, the disciple took her into his care. That would have been illegal under Jewish law if Mary had other kids. It would have gone to the next of kin not to his disciple, all right? Mary only had one kid, and that kid was Jesus, and that child, as we know, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we say, ever virgin. Uh, immaculate conception. We say that Mary had no sin from the very moment of conception. And in fact, if you go into the, into the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that the greeting of the angel, we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, full of grace. That's the, the greeting of the angel. The actual Greek is, and it exists in no other place, not only in the New Testament, but no other place in the world. Kyrie is a, is, a, is a greeting of hail, like St. Paul said that all the time. Greeting. Like if you met somebody on the street in ancient Athens, you'd say, Kyrie. That's how you said, hey, hey, buddy, what's up? Kyrie, amigo. Um, but kikaretomene, that word was completely coined, doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, the grace, the, Greek, the root of charis for grace is in there. Mene um, uh, makes it a, a gerund. Uh, and K, K-E is the, the, the cap, uh, kappa epsilon is, is a, um, a re, uh, reduplication. And it means you who are being and, uh, and have been transformed by grace. That's the best I can try to translate it. We don't know how to say that. We say hail full of grace. But she's unlike anyone else who ever lived and is right there in the scriptures. And her grace her relationship to grace is what makes her unlike anybody else who ever lived. Now, is Jesus still her savior? Yes. We call, we say that he kept her from falling into sin by virtue of the grace that he would have won on the cross. All right? They call that prevenient grace. Uh, if there's a pothole in the street and every call, car driving over the pothole is breaking an axle, and I tell you... Um, don't go down that street. And you don't go down that street. What have I just done? I've just saved your axle, right? Um, uh, I, could fill, I could fill in the pothole. 
Uh, but either way, I've prevented, I've just saved your axle, right? Um, either way. Uh, and what we say is that before she ever was even conceived, God gave her this special relationship of grace. And she wasn't the only one to ever have that. Adam and Eve had that. Were they born with sin? They were not born with sin. They were not created in sin. Man was not created in sin. Um, we don't know how many free choices Adam and Eve exercised before they made a bad choice. Uh, but they were born into a perfect world and they screwed up really fast. Mary was born into a fallen world and she never dropped the ball. Um, I, I like to think of the temptation she must have had. To, I, I imagine she must have been very tempted to the foot of the cross to turn against all of us. Because what happened to her son was our fault, not hers. Um, I mean, there's a million different things that she could have been tempted to, to spare. Or get, and, she, and she always had this special relationship with grace, okay? So what we say is that was always the case. Uh, conceived in the womb, by, by, free, from, free from original sin. It's important to understand that the Immaculate Conception does not refer to the conception of Jesus. Nine out of ten Catholics think it does. Immaculate Conception, yeah, wasn't that the angel Gabriel who appeared unto Mary and said, uh, you're going to be the mother of Jesus, and Mary said, yes, I'll be the mother of Jesus, and immaculately, Jesus was conceived in her womb. Nine out of ten Catholics, that's the Immaculate Conception. We're going to have the Immaculate Conception Mass on Saturday. doesn't help that that's the reading. Okay, that's the gospel reading on the Immaculate Conception. But I could ask you, why did they read that gospel in the Immaculate Conception? It's because of the word hail full of grace. Hail kikareto mene. That's why they read it. But everybody walks away thinking that it's the conception of Jesus. Please understand, the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of who? Mary. Mary. She's the, she is the Immaculate Conception in the womb of her mother, St. Anne. That's the Immaculate Conception, not the conception of Jesus. Okay. Uh, assumed into heaven... At the moment of death, Mary's body was taken to heaven. I have no idea what that means. But there's no tomb of, there's no grave of Mary. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, there, you'll say there's a, there's a, a tomb of Mary. Um, believe it or not. Um, but there's no body in the tomb. And everybody knows there's no body in the tomb. There's never been a body in the tomb. It's where they believe that the moment of, well, they don't even define whether she died or not. If you ask a, a Greek Catholic, Eastern Rite Catholic, they'll call it the dormition of Mary, the sleeping of Mary. They don't say whether she died or not. We'll say she was assumed or taken into heaven, but we don't say whether she died or not. We leave it as an open question. Did Mary die? I don't know. Um, she never had any sin. Death is a consequence of sin, so maybe she didn't die. On the other hand... Jesus died, and she imitated Jesus in everything. So maybe she did die. See what I mean? You don't, I don't know which way. To, I don't know which direction to take that one. So we don't really. We, what we do say is that she was taken into heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven. Mary did not ascend into heaven. She was taken to heaven. So her body didn't undergo the corruption of the tomb. Now I talked about. Uh, I talked about relics. Does everybody know what a relic is? Okay, a relic is a bone of a saint. Just in case you didn't know. A bone of a saint. And you ever read the, the, the Canterbury Tales? Chaucer's Canterbury Tales? Okay, if you haven't read the Canterbury Tales, um, it, it's a series of, they're, they're, they're on their way to pilgrimage to see the, the bones of Thomas Becket in Canterbury, right? And one of the characters in the Canterbury Tales is a, a man called the Pardoner. And he is a cleric. And 
all the worst of medieval clergymen are contained in the character of the pardoner in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And one of the things that the pardoner does in the Canterbury Tales is he takes a squirrel bone and he tries to pass it off as a holy relic, which goes to show that somewhere back along the line, people must have done that, okay? Um, passed off, yeah, you know, hey, look, everybody, it's the relic of uh, St. Paul. Yeah, yeah, it was a squirrel bone, whatever. He tried to pass it off. So in history, they tried to fake relics. Yes, we know that for a fact. Nobody's ever tried to fake the relic of Mary. What does that tell you? It tells you that from the very beginning, everybody knew there was no such thing as a relic of, of Mary. Um, you've heard of, if you go to, um, uh, I believe it's uh, Chartres Cathedral. I believe it's Chartres Cathedral. They have a veil of the Blessed Mother. In fact, the entire cathedral, as best I know, I might, I might be wrong on the specifics, I think it's Chartres. The entire cathedral was built originally to house the relic that was the veil of the Blessed Mother. But if you count up the number of veils of the Blessed Mother that are across Europe, you could make a bed linen. Okay? So a lot, some of them are obviously fake. Why did anybody ever fake the bones of Mary if they're going to fake her veil and they're going to fake... Because everybody knew from the very beginning there were no bones to fake. She was taken into heaven. There's no tomb. Okay? So that's what we say. She was taken... And Jesus rose from the dead in a body. And I said... At the end of all things, we're going to... I said this in the class on, on, on death and dying. Somehow there's going to be a resurrection of the body. Right? Can I tell you something frightening? Did you realize there's going to be a resurrection of the body for the damned as well? I have no idea what that looks like. Right? I know what the resurrection of the body for the, for the blessed is going to be. It's going to look like Jesus. But you were made body and soul. And even in hell, it's going to be body and soul. All I know is it's not going to look good. Right? That's all I know. Uh, if, you, if you don't like the way you look now, the, the damned, resurrected body, it's gonna, somehow it's going to be worse. That's all I can say. All right? um, so on that happy note, anybody have any questions?